0: House. She didn't understand the rules. What are the rules? You take her innocence, her youth, her prospects, in respectable society, and then you have a child they can offer and send God knows where. I thought her child had died. A time for reckoning comes to us
1: all. This is Meet at The Alienist Podcast. I'm Mike Caputo.
0: And I'm Sheila McGann.
1: Tonight, we're talking about episode four of season two of The Alienist, Angel of Darkness. The episode was called Gilded Cage.
0: Gilded Cage was a teleplay by Alison Feltz and directed by Claire Kilner. I don't know about you, but I definitely needed an emotional support something after the last 10 minutes of this episode. How about you?
1: This episode was actually kind of lighthearted as far as an Alienist episode goes. I mean, there was a lot of the episode took place at the ball and there was some fun stuff there, but... The punctuated tension and terror was like a level 10 plus, you know, so so I, I felt the episode actually started with a lot of tension. You know, you had to cut the, the cutting scenes between Laszlo and Mrs. Kala uh, Mrs. and the creepy pictures of all the dead babies with their eyes closed, except for the two with the eyes open. And then intercutting that with Sarah prepping Bitsy was like a really tension laden opening scene. Yeah. We have the end scene with the matron and Libby. We're going to do a little bit different approach tonight, guys. We're actually going to go by character instead of linearly. So the the name of the episode is The Gilded Cage. The phrase is kind of understood to mean a place where someone appears to live in luxury, but where he or she may have very little freedom. So the question for you is, who is the one in The Gilded Cage?
0: You know, I looked this up too, because I wanted to see the frame of reference, because we are talking about the Gilded Age here. That's part of where the the patrons of the ball are are known as the 400. I don't know. I'm trying to think of who's the person in the gilded cage. Like my
1: first instinct was it's John. Yes. John is very much living a life uh, that he really doesn't want to be living, but at this point feels kind of trapped or I feel he feels kind of trapped.
0: What are his motivations? Why is he doing this? And he is the person living in luxury, but without freedom.
1: Sarah. And I think this is one of the things that John calls her out about is, is kind of living in the gilded cage. Uh, he he accuses her more of being a hypocrite than necessarily trapped in said cage, but that she is confined by the affluence she has, even though she's got this real country girl rogue spirit vibe about her. So I think that works a little bit. But for me, the real standout is John, because I think all the other people we see in this episode, the you know the 400 that are at this massive elaborate uh, engagement party, mas- masquerade ball, they don't feel trapped. They're fucking wallowing in it like rich pigs
0: oh god they're, they're like diving into the cake it was hard to watch when laszlo
1: drops the it's like the versailles at the end times it was such an apt description that i was just kind of nodding at the screen as i was watching it uh speaking of laszlo let's jump into him because he has an interesting role in this episode through him i think there come a couple of really interesting things that we haven't really really talked about in this show and the first one i want to talk about is immigration twice we see immigration comes come up in this episode, uh, Laszlo specifically speaking to himself uh, about himself as an immigrant, he, he has a discussion with uh, Senor Linares. He empathizes with him as an immigrant and the way this country can treat immigrants, uh, making the larger point that the police are not interested in helping Senor and Senor Linares. Not only are they Spanish and who we may be going to war with at this at this very point in time, but they're also immigrants. And the, the idea is that they're not very welcome here. Osgood essentially calls him immigrant trash that he can have deported, which is kind of crazy because Chrysler is this very well-educated educated, upstanding citizen, while, while not a socialite in his own right, is well accepted in these circles.
0: I was pretty shocked that the stance on immigration is not all that different between 1897 and 2020, where we have much of the same sentiments. There's many factors of society who don't trust the police in their own communities. I work for New York City and I work in healthcare. So there are a number of undocumented people within the city who we care for, who are afraid to come to the hospitals that are afraid to go to the police because of fear of deportation if they seek care. So if you're afraid to go to your doctor, imagine what coming up against a police officer would make you feel. So the fact that the sentiment rang so true to today was both disheartening and kind of surprising that the show would be so close to the mark. For when the show was produced and edited, they, they couldn't have known necessarily the climate that we're in today as well. It was a pretty poignant exclamation point for me to to kind of hear this and, and to see it in two different ways where it was being used against Laszlo and then in Laszlo himself saying that I empathize with you. We're seeing that empathy from Laszlo as well where he's able to reach out and he's able to connect with a person to kind of get what he wants but it, in a good way like he's trying to get out of Senor Linares his cooperation but he is using that empathy that we've been talking about now for three episodes. I'm happy to see where he's using the skills that he's picked up from Sarah to further the case.
1: History will always repeat itself. And this country has had a very tough relationship with immigration, especially at this time in history when this show is taking place. The United States is in the midst of and will actually become even more severe in its immigration stances. In 1882, the United States actually passed the Chinese Exclusion Act, which essentially barred all Chinese and I think a decent amount of Japanese immigrants from coming to this country outright. In 1917, the Immigration Act of 1917 was passed, which put in place for the first time a literacy test. One of the aims here was to reduce the amount of labor being brought to the country, the idea being that any immigrant laborers coming over here we're going to be taking away jobs from the laborers who were over here. You had a lot of ethnic groups who relied on labor to make their living. And so the 1917 Act also put a ban on the Asiatic Zone. It expanded the Chinese Exclusion Act, which would stay in effect until 1943, I believe. 1921, we had the Emergency Quota Act, which outright limited the number of Immigrants that could come from certain countries based on 3% of the population from the 1910 census. The aim here was a, a beginning of a movement to limit the amount of Southern and Eastern Europeans. So we were moving on from our Asia xenophobia to various parts of Europe. And then 1924, you have the Immigration Act, which puts explicit quotas on a number of Southern and Eastern European groups uh, targeted at Italians, Eastern European Jews, Slavics, Polish, the Greeks. The idea here was that Southern and Eastern Europeans were inferior to their Anglo-Saxons. The, the term WASP actually comes out of this movement. The white Anglo-Saxon Protestant comes out of this reactionary anti-immigration movement. In 1894, the Immigration Restrictive League was created specifically to oppose immigration from these parts of Europe because of the feeling that they threatened the WASP in this country and that they were inferior Now, Laszlo is German, a German father, but has a Hungarian mother. The backlash against him would come presumably through his Hungarian mother, an Eastern European country. And and part of his accent is Dane from there. The German side of him, it's uh, colored by his Hungarian ancestry. Just a nod to the show, having a really good angle on immigration issues and timely. I mean, this country sucks with immigration now and sucks with immigration, you know, back in the 1800s, in the early 1900s. The U.S. Border Patrol was actually created in that Immigration Act of
0: 1924. I literally have a shirt that says, don't make me repeat myself, quote unquote, from history. And my grandfather had my I had three grandparents who emigrated to the US in the 20s. And my grandfather went back with my grandmother to Ireland and he brought with him a no Irish need apply sign that he kept hung in his parlor. That was a very real thing in my own family legacy and history.
1: Two other big things really happened with Laszlo in this episode. One is we meet a female Laszlo Chrysler. We we meet Karen Stratton, a female alienist and Violet's professor at Barnard.
0: I loved her. I want her to be real. I'm hoping she's not like I have some like paranoid bent here. I'm hoping she's not kind of some sort of a plant or something like that. It seems too perfect to be true. I like how she's basically his equal and he's. He's almost at a complete loss for words. He is a smitten kitten, to use your line from the last episode. I am hoping that we see more of her. I feel that she's definitely someone who's going to pique Laszlo's curiosity when he finds his words again to speak to her.
1: The Amy to his Sheldon? <laughs> she re- she just really seemed like a female version of him. She had a real clipped speaking uh, way about her, loaded to bear with really obscure facts and figures. And... He's aware of her too, which I like. You know, they don't really, I think this may be one of the first alienists that they've actually had on the show other than him. So it's interesting to remind us that this was a profession. This was a real thing before forensic, criminal forensic science really had progressed. You had alienists. You had people like Lazo and people like Karen. Lara Pulver, who plays her, is booked to be on uh, five of the remaining six episodes, I believe. Oh, so great. we're going to see a lot more of her, whether or not she turns out to be a plant. And I am, I'm with you. I hope she turns out to be the real thing since the Sarah angle seems to be closed, which is my true ship. Following the ball, Lazo has this statement where, where they're kind of rehashing where they stand now with suspects. And he seems to, he says about Marco that he had created a miasma of chaos at the hospital in which the killer is hiding, but now says he's not sure if he has any involvement more than that.
0: I'm wondering if Laszlo just wants there to be a connection because, I mean, there's obviously something there, but I'm getting the sense from how events transpired in this episode that Marco is more of a marginal player. I might be proved wrong because I do owe Colleen an apology after my last statement in the in the previous episode. But it just felt that his judgment might still be clouded by his defeat at the Martha Knapp trial, the execution that he had to witness where Marco was seen as the victor. It's really hampered Laszlo this season. So I'm hoping that his judgment is clear and that it's not just Laszlo wanting something to be there. Because all evidence is kind of pointing away from Marco, although there is still a question mark for me against his name going, well, where are these babies? I actually took it a little bit
1: differently than you did. I I found this statement at the end of the episode to be more of an exoneration in Lazo's eyes from the main crime. I I think he still thinks Marco's a piece of shit. I think he still thinks he is negligent. I think he still is parking the death of Martha Knapper execution at his feet. But he he seemed here at the end of the episode to be saying, Marco is really just the the wound that has allowed the real killer, you know, bacteria to fester. He's created the environment for murder to take place, but is himself maybe probably not the murderer. So it seemed kind of an exoneration, which... For me, it's kind of a step up for Laszlo. I mean, he's had his real bone, and we've been talking about whether or not his ob- objectivity is clouded uh, since the season began. This seemed to be kind of him taking a step back and taking a really objective view at the situation where he seems ready to kind of move on, which is interesting because Sarah at that point says, Well, I don't think we can take him off the board yet. So it's almost like a little bit of a flip flop between the two of them. She- she's not ready to let Marco go because, again, she has that great scene with Marco and Helen. So now she's having a really sour view. of Marco seeing him in person, and Laszlo now seems to kind of be letting his bone go with him. I think it's a little too early to say he's completely not guilty, but interesting to see where Chrysler's brain is going here in the investigation. The only other thing that was interesting to note was in the conversation with Osgood, where we pulled the clip that begins the top of this episode, you know, a reckoning comes for us all. Osgood says he thought the baby had died, Helen's baby had died, which seems significant only because... Maybe it makes him a little more sympathetic if he didn't know the baby was being you know, kidnapped to be God knows what to, that that he also believed that the baby was stillborn. Maybe based on the gifts that he is having sent to Helen, maybe the thought here is he would have taken care of the baby financially in some kind of way, maybe the same way Hearst maybe he took care of Violet Hayward in a way. Who knows? I don't know. But I, I was more curious... Did we believe him when he says that I thought the baby had died?
0: I don't. I don't because when he met with Dr. Marco in the first episode, when he was bringing Helen there, he said, you know, what will become of the child? I don't want a scandal there either. And Marco says not to worry about the child. So I'm I'm not sure what that meant, but I don't necessarily believe Osgood. There was a moment, a pause, and his face kind of changed, but I'm not sure if I believe him.
1: I, f- I feel like I'm a little inclined to be- that he believed the baby died because it allows his guilt to the extent he has any to the extent he has any conscience, to be assuaged a bit. I feel like he had convinced himself or, or at least had decided not to ask too many questions about it.
0: Yeah, I think he went down the path that Marco was leading him down and was fine to believe that, oh, sure, the baby died. It just seemed too, too neat of a, a lucentive tied up from that conversation with Marco when he was bringing her in.
1: Oh, John Schuyler Moore. Let's switch to this sad sack. I think we have to give John some big points for bringing Joanna Crawford, uh, Cyrus's niece, into the Times, given that he seemed to pretty accurately be ready for Bernie's reaction to her being a, a woman of color, working the gossip pages, the society pages at the Times. What did you think of of John here in the scene?
0: I was so proud of him. I gave him a huge pat on the back for how well he handled that. He was ready at the get-go to not have any questions asked that he was going to be the one directing the conversation. I mean, he could have prepared Bernie a little bit, I guess. That might have removed any possibility of her actually coming to work for the Times. So the fact that he kind of did it like a fait accompli, but kudos to him for handling the situation in such a, a sensitive way and also making Joanna feel at ease and you know, congratulating her for her her work prior in her college days, basically showing that she's able to cut the muster at, uh, at the New York Times.
1: I don't think it could go unnoticed that Bernie knew about the suffragette paper that she had written. He just didn't know she was...
0: The author. Yeah, yeah
1: right, exactly. So obviously her work speaks for itself. Uh, as far as John goes, I think he subscribes to the a very wise rule. It's always easier to ask for forgiveness than to ask for permission. I, I think that's a little bit of what we see on the doc here. Uh, l- let's cut to the party though, because this is where John's real scenes happen. Already not having a fan in his future father-in-law, William Randolph Hearst, he goes to like the back door meeting with Hearst, and Richard Osgood is sitting there with uh, his shit-eating grin on his face. He's trying to convince. Hearst to not use the Linares baby situation to inflame anti-Spanish sentiments, not to use the kidnapped baby, which may or may not still be alive as a pawn in his yellow journalism because it may cost them the baby. It may cost them the life. And Hearst doesn't really, I mean, he doesn't even blink before he dismisses this idea. And I think this is what really gets Hearst's goat. He is already cooking when he goes to take the stage to give his big toast to the bride and groom to be
0: by the time William Randolph Hearst gets to the actual speech part, it was almost like a comic thing. Like if he had pulled at his shirt collar, like the steam would have come out of it. But he was just fishy. I feel like he was fishing for information from John because when John says that linking this to the Spanish and, and the war sentiment would spook the kidnappers and, you know, William Randolph Hearst feels that like he caught him out. He says, oh, but you feel that there are kidnappers. So I'm not really sure where William Randolph Hearst wanted to, like what he wanted to get out of John for that. I feel like he was just doing it just just to try to rile John up so that he says something dumb, just to have Richard Osgood there as a sort of a witness to to it. So I I really didn't feel that he was fishing for anything of substance. I think he was already of the mindset that he was going to run this headline, that he was going to do this because it fed that yellow journalism. It fed that warmongering that he was after
1: he's also genuinely annoyed that john won't just get in line and come work for him at the new york journal i think he takes this as a real affront that you're going to be a part, member of this family and you know for sure hearst would consider john even being a Schuyler moore joining the hearst family not violet his goddaughter we're going
0: with this episode quote unquote, air quotes uh,
1: <laughs> joining the skylar moore family you know hearst hearst is an egomaniac of, of the highest order this is like their second or third conversation about this now. John still won't budge. And on top of it, has a story, has information that Hearst wants.
0: Right, and he won't share it.
1: Even if Hearst wouldn't report it correctly, he still wants the information. He doesn't like the idea that what he, he sees John is less than. And he can't deal with the fact that he has something that Hearst doesn't have. You know, add to that that he knows from Burns that Moore is in cahoots with Sarah and with Chrysler and maybe, you know, looking at things or, or, or working something that he's not involved in, I think is bothering him. But I also think he thinks John is just kind of a gold digger. That speech that then Violet jumps in on. Uh, by bringing in Sarah's name publicly and Augie jumps in on by calling them dirt poor and not having a car when they get the, the first fine German automobile motor car. They, they all just pile on, all for their different reasons, but John is just getting, just this is just a public flogging he's getting here. It was so cringeworthy. I, I was wincing the entire time during this scene.
0: I just felt so bad for him. There was There was no reason that it needed to go that far other than to humiliate him.
1: I think this also answers your question about... Uh, from episode three, where Violet has the thing with Sarah, and uh, of course she'll be bringing someone. Sarah's on stage with her father when she sees John and Sarah making, you know, when they're talking to each other, and Sarah gives that funny line about she's a lady undercover on the Sunday stroll, and John is clearly ensorcelled by her. Violet sees that like, like only a woman can in a sea of 500 people sees her man and Sarah talking to each other. She vocally brings Sarah's name up as a way of embarrassing both of them, you know, not having to beg a ride off of Miss Howard anymore just to shame them.
0: These are just horrible people. For the number of people who were at this party and for her being the center of attention, Violet was very attuned to where John was and who he was speaking to because he caught every interaction between Sarah and John and she was just seething throughout every interaction. Did you, did you see that? Is that what you saw too?
1: Oh yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. Uh, just, just go back to uh, Hearst for a second. When he says, it's my soapbox boy. Ugh, you don't call a grown-ass man, boy. Jesus Christ. In front
0: of, like, New York society. Yeah, of which John is a member.
1: It's not like he's the sh- shine guy who's marrying Violet. He's a fucking Skyler Moore. Like, this is a, a known family. It was established in season one that maybe it was his grandmother more than anything. But John comes from a socialite family. And he is just he's just uh, giving the essential of whacking him across the face with like a white glove. John bottles it up and he takes it like a good soldier because John, for all the rage John shows from time to time and, and quick to anger, he also really knows how to keep his powder dry. And he is not going to exacerbate this public shaming anymore. But he does kind of unload on Sarah. Where where do you fall down? And he, he, he gets at her when she essentially says, you should marry someone more like me, but not me. He unloads on her. He calls her childless, childless, lonely, corseted, essentially calls her a hypocrite. He has that whole Yazoo tributary analogy. Was that a fair dressing down of Sarah? He really bites her head off. Or did did Sarah deserve it?
0: In some ways, she deserves it. I'm sorry. I mean, I know I'm supposed to, like, side with the females here. But at the same time, she's she's rejected him so let's you know run through what he said she rejected him he proposed she rejected i feel this was the pent up feelings that he had that he maybe wanted to express to her at his disappointment but he had to unload he had to let it out and i i don't think that anything he said was unfair it hurts to hear the truth maybe in a in a unadulterated kind of a way he's damaged he's he's hurt by her so it's it's not an unfair statement for him to say that she is corseted and that she is because she does present herself in such a way that she is a hypocrite she has different feelings now all of a sudden i feel like this is like the scene from best my best friend's wedding or the plot from my best friend's wedding it's like now all of a sudden the the one that you've always had in your back pocket is now unattainable and now you want him so you don't get to have your your cake and eat it too to you know, bring back the Marie Antoinette sort of theme to the party. Yeah, she gives him an unfair position to put himself in. Basically, I feel like the wedding is imminent. Like he's already had the bachelor party, the engagement party. I feel like the wedding is pretty soon based on the chain of events. And he's he's backed into a corner by her and by the Hearst family now. And he does the only thing that he can do in his lash out.
1: This was her version of Laszlo's speech, drunken speech at the end of the bachelor party, you know, at uh, Cyrus's place last episode. She being Violet and that whole family doesn't love you like they should. They don't treat you like you deserve to be treated, which is very much the friend side of Sarah coming out. And maybe if it was Laszlo, Saying it, John would have taken it a little bit better. But it was this woman who has been the object of his affection for time since probably before this show began. He's had some kind of feelings for Sarah, at least as long as I can remember, anyway. He has had the spark of love for her. And for her to say, you need to be with someone who is more like me, dot, 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 but not me. Fuck, Sarah. I'm damned if I do, if I'm damned if I'm dote, if you're John in this situation, right? I propose to you, you rejected me. I continue to pine for you, you reject me. I go on all of these wacky adventures with you, yet I still have to live my life. You know, I'm a, I am don't want to be one of those guys who's not married by a certain amount of time in life. I have to. My grandmother expected me to. I have a role to play in the society. And I was willing to throw it all away to be with you, you wacky detective agent but you said no and so i have to go do what i have to do so from that point of view i think it's a little justified i see where she's coming from she's saying she's giving him the hard truth that he needs to hear but man is it the absolute wrong time he just got shit on publicly shit on by his fiance his future father-in-law and his best friend all just kind of sat there and flogged him in the ass
0: but they basically took turns yeah
1: and then she comes with this with this information which is i mean she's right on everything she says but A, she picks the horrible time to talk about it and to raise up. You don't think he realizes he was just publicly shamed and embarrassed? He understands that. He's not adult.
0: And he's standing by himself. He's found the only quiet corner in this massive sea of people. And she finds him and she's going to just dig the needle in further. It just If he didn't have an explosion like this, I would have been like, you are a wet blanket, sir. I feel like this is the emotion that I've needed to see from him for like four episodes now.
1: John, who is always the smiley one, the one who's always kind of making goofy remarks, real jad jokes, you know, kind of humor, has been just sad-faced and pouting and just really... Just a shell of himself, basically this whole season. He's with Miss right now. He's not with the one he wants to be with. Sarah, he doesn't need this. This is just the last straw that breaks his back and then he he explodes all, right. all over Right, she lit the it. fuse. She has a couple of tough moments in this episode. She, in her pursuit to get the truth about what's going on in the lying hospital. In addition to setting John off, she kind of puts Bitsy in a really bad position in this episode. So let's move on to Sarah because it's time to talk about our girl. She starts the episode by trying to pressure Libby into telling, spilling the beans about Colleen. I give Libby a lot of credit for really not biting. She actually has a great quote at the beginning of the episode,
0: people who cannot stand up for themselves are often unhappily blamed for the sins of others
1: and and in light of how the episode unfolds, really makes Libby even more complicated than she obviously is, but it, it was an interesting retort to sarah 's pressure tactics sarah is 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 pushing all of her angles really hard here, not crazy about Sarah in this episode, I feel like I feel like in her haste to really move this along, the clock is literally ticking for this baby who's missing. She is definitely laying on heavy on all of these people who are kind of subordinate to her. I mean she she's trying to really manipulate Libby in the scene. Later on, she really leans heavily on Bitsy in the church scene.
0: I feel like she got very chrysler like in order to get what she wanted. Even less tact
1: as demanding as Chrysler can be, I feel like he always has a little more tact or at least a little more awareness for the consequences. I feel like Sarah just kind of barrels around in this episode a little bit without really thinking through what might happen. We have that scene at the end of the ball where Helen Sumner makes her fantastic batshit crazy barging into the engagement party and starts yelling at Osgood and Marco cuts her off. How frustrating was it to watch Marco be able to woo and lure Helen away? Were you as frustrated as, and as, as upset as Sarah clearly was in the scene?
0: Oh, I was like shouting at my screen going, please don't fall for this, Helen. You're smarter than this. You're better than this. They don't love you. The fact that he was able to, he's, with that milky, sweet voice of his, he was able to say, but he wants you to come to the townhouse in the carriage right away. And she's, her face changes. Her She gets this soft, faraway kind of floaty with the waltzy music that just started kind of look in her eyes. And she's just like led away as if she was like Cinderella at the ball. And meanwhile, this horrid scene just played out, but she's fell for it, hook, line, and sinker. So yeah, I was pretty frustrated
1: with it. The power switched so fast in that scene. Sarah is able to control the situation and keep Marco from dragging her away, Helen, away by saying, I will scream so loud, it will cause a scandal that you do not want. And I was like, yeah, fuck yeah, girl, go get it. Go for it, go for it. But then the power switches so fast because Marco knows Helen. He knows this kind of woman. He doesn't know Helen specifically, but he knows the kind of broken woman that Helen is because this is his bread and butter. Motherhood, mayhem, and murder all wrapped up in one for him. He knows exactly the tone to take saying all the words. I doubt we see Helen again. Oh, she's gone. She's going to be found with like cement shoes at the bottom of the East River, or she's going to be handed over to Gugu Knox for some late night human dismemberment or something. We're not seeing Helen anymore. Oh no,
0: she's gone. But you know, at Pod Clubhouse, we do the Yellowstone podcast. And in that series, when they need to get rid of somebody, they take them to the train station.
1: I love the train station. I think
0: Helen's going to be taken to the train station.
1: Imagine Bitsy dies. How much guilt Sarah would have been carrying around with her No, I mean, Lucius was kind of like a romantically happy that I think Bitsy was revived. But Sarah was like, there's no therapist in the world to assuage me of the guilt I would have had you died level of relieved when she comes to again.
0: With Lucius, he's absolutely Prince Charming in this scene. His kiss was a syringe in the neck, but he is definitely, there's going to be a change now. Change in the air. But Sarah, she took such a huge risk here. And, you know, Bitsy assuring her on the way to the lying in hospital that I can handle myself. And the whole time I'm like, somebody needs to tell your face that you can handle yourself because she was looking so nervous. Sarah even hands her a handkerchief for God's sake. This woman is scared. She can handle herself. She's she's a tough woman. She's smart. But we're also dealing with a psychotic killer. The fact that Bitsy gets out of it, I think spare Sarah a lifetime of guilt.
1: You are 100% right. We know from her, when from the speech at the end of the episode where she's, you know, bucking up her and Millie, Bitsy and Millie, about this is a real case. This is like a life and death case. This is the first real work, like real serious work that these ladies have done. And this is the position you put her in? God, Sarah, I mean... What? whoa, you were you were lucky it worked out this way. So yeah. Sarah 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 had some judgment call issues this episode.
0: She's gonna have to take some introspective, you know, time after this just to examine her tactics.
1: But one thing she did do right was last episode, when she goes to the park following Senora Lenaris's painting therapy, she notices the flash photographer. She says, pull the photographer's photos. We have to see what he caught on film. Thank God she did that. A great detective. She does have a great mind for detective work. Those pictures come in super handy tonight. Miss Lenaris is able to ID her once she has her hypnosis-based breakthrough that it was actually her at the hospital, not Eva. Her mind had thrown off a wall had for her memory. it, right. So A, hypnosis works, yay for Chrysler and his new wacky theories. Um, But B, great that Samra was able to produce those pictures for her to really do kind of a old fashioned lineup, you know, Uh, which are these? No, I don't feel it
0: was an old fashioned lineup. I feel that this was like a 2020, like we proposed at the top of the Empire State Building. Did anybody get the Twitter video? Oh, it came from England. Great. Like, I feel like that was, that was how it kind of went down.
1: The fact that they were able to pull like, you know, the eight photographs or whatever and splay them out. I, when I said old-timey, I meant more that this was like the early days of lineups and, yes. and this kind of I knew fore- what you meant, but... forensic approach to uh, detective work. I love getting to see Sarah succeed in this kind of way. But yes, I think you're right. I think she definitely needs to take a step back and think about her tactics to achieve her aims. Do the ends justify all of the means you may take to get there? I think that's a question she needs to take a step back after this episode and ask herself. But speaking of people who put their life, life on the line for Sarah to achieve her ends, let's talk about Bitsy. Bitsy's good at what she does. She is able to, within seconds, wheedle her way into this episode and actually makes herself maybe the most important member of this episode.
0: So Bitsy being the right person for the job, I think absolutely is, is crucial because she does have the type of personality and why she's so good for it is because she has the type of personality that she does. She's able to portray herself as innocent enough that she can ask questions and not seem nosy. The, the questions do pile up and people start to get a little antsy, but she is able to insert herself in such a way that she's likable, that she's useful, you know, that she jumps in and she, she, you know, helps out when there's a a baby puke situation. So she's able to gain the trust pretty quickly, almost like a Libby and Sarah from the previous episode where... They have a, a very quick friendship that develops. But, you know, Bitsy's able to to immerse herself quite quickly. And I think that she was the right person for the job. I just don't think that she necessarily had all of the tools to uh, to fight off a psychotic killer.
1: She is your poster child for New York Girl with Moxie and hutzpah.
0: I identify with Bitsy on a lot of levels.
1: She takes her instructions and she really runs with all of it. Within seconds, she gets herself next to Colleen, who was a target, right? She told her to be friends make friends with the ward girls. Colleen drops some really important information, including really early that Colleen started off As a patient herself, she was also a Richard Osgood mistress who was uh, pregnant, lost, quote unquote, lost the baby, which is interesting because it gives you a look into Colleen and really puts Colleen on the profile list, right? There's a scene here back at the office. They talk about how Colleen and the matron both fit the profile, the grief, the loss, the prone to anger. Bitsy gets all of that information out of her within seconds. Also that Helen was fixed. While Helen silently weeps in her bed. Jesus yeah. Christ, they're fixing women. Yeah. Holy shit. What are they not doing? I mean, so that answers the question on the scalpel. It was not getting the gentleman's stitch.
0: No, but I mean, I have procedural questions because in 1897, there was no way to do a fix on a female, an operation. Like going in, you know, belly side up kind of thing. So procedural questions, but, you know, how ever.
1: Well, you don't know that they didn't do that. I mean, Helen is not in great shape when she finally makes it. To Yo, the this woman she is, is not, she is
0: gray. First of all. Yeah. So I, I don't right. know. It's just, I mean, it's possible that, yeah. you know, the, it's major surgery in 1897.
1: Jesus. I mean, and Osgood is just obviously a repeat offender. I mean, we, within, within just a couple episodes, we know that we now know about two women that he's done this with. So how many people at lying in hospital past or present were there courtesy of Richard Osgood? Jesus Christ.
0: When Sarah at the party, When she puts her cigarette out in his drink saying that he should be ashamed of himself, I was just elated beyond everything. I was like, yeah, fuck yeah, Sarah. That's good for you for doing that. So um, I felt like that was like one little knock at Richard Osgood's peg there.
1: Her research with Colleen, also learning that the maternal research ward is full of postpartum women, no babies. What are they doing with the babies? This is all great information. Here's where the issue comes from. She has this clandestine meeting with Sarah. She drops, she gives over all this information that she has already called in just a little bit by asking her probing questions, but not too many questions. She's asking real just looking around and lying in hospital is clearly on its face, not a normal place. So she's asking surface level questions, which is a, giving getting answers from Colleen. But after this meeting, Sarah says, you know, ramp it up, friend, become friends with Colleen. Yeah, get
0: friends with her, yeah.
1: That's where the problem comes in, because Bitsy comes back. And she becomes too pushy. There's a fine line of inquisitive and suspicious. And she crosses heavily into suspicious, which leads to Colleen giving this great red herring uh, situation where she attacks Bitsy and begins to chase her.
0: Yo, this was a slap-happy episode.
1: (laughs) Clearly, we had already seen her with the scissors, right, last week, you know, throwing them into the table. You had remarked about, you know, the kind of force and violence required to do that this is not a woman you want to set off Bitsy asks one too many questions and and it does set colleen off you know especially after earlier treading the line by kind of insinuating about colleen and marco maybe fucking which gets colleen to storm out but at least she has an attacker there Bitsy doesn't really relent she takes libby's advice she apologizes but then continues asking more questions Were you surprised that Colleen went after her like she did?
0: I wasn't because we were getting this profile on Colleen. Um, You know, Libby had some things to say about Colleen in the last episode. We knew that Colleen has a temper. And there is something between her and Marco because she, I went back. She is the one who served Sarah T in Marco's office. So there is something there. She is definitely prone to anger and rightfully so. I mean, she, she was a patient, so she knows what goes on there. They tried to have her fixed, but it didn't work. She's definitely embroiled in some of the goings on here at the hospital that are maybe a little bit under the surface nefarious. You
1: could see her pot boiling when they have that whole conversation about I've got secrets and and then she storms off. That was her trying to, if you watch like Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Rosa Diaz always wants to punch people. That's always her solution. Like her first solution is let me hit you. you know. And I think Colleen is kind of the same way. I think that was her trying to not do that there was this new girl. She seemed kind of cool. They seemed to like each other. You know, she caught her breaking into the drug room. So she, she felt like some, maybe some kinship with Colleen. Like you're as fucked up as everyone else who works here. So maybe we can be friends.
0: Yeah, you're a bit of a rebel.
1: Exactly. Right, right, right. So she, she didn't want to lash out at her already. But then she keeps fucking asking questions to the point where she snaps. Super violent. Irish. <laughs> Unfortunately, her chasing Bitsy leads to, dun-dun-dun, Libby and the terrifying Charcoal Face. When she turns around with the charcoal thing teeth tell me what you did.
0: Oh my- I was like, Jesus Christ. Like, I wrote down in my notes, I was like, this was the prestige, like, of the magic trick that I just did not see coming. And when she just turned around, I'm like, looking at her mouth, I'm like, oh shit, that's charcoal! Bitsy, get the fuck out! I'm talking to my screen, which is really sad because I watched this episode at, like, midnight on my laptop. This was not pleasant. <laughs>
1: I had said last week that Libby was strange, but likable. I gotta tell you, I kind of still feel that way. There's something very endearing about her, but when she turns around with the charcoal covered mouth and she's got the syringe in her hands and she says, You really, you know what? You really do ask too many questions. And then she has that lightning stab of the syringe into into Bitsy's neck, I was like, holy
0: fuck, what is going
1: on? I, I, I literally was, I was taken aback. It, it, it made me jump a little I bit. Jumped, at, yeah. At the ferocious violence of it because I didn't see it coming. If Colleen had done it, I'd be like, yeah, that's just how that girl rolls. It was such a well done twist. It was the kind of thing that the alienist excels at. Right. So much of season one that really stands out in your mind was when the episode ends, and you're like, oh,
0: my God, I didn't like, that never coming. saw that coming.
1: I never saw that coming. And and I really Libby had the wool pulled over my eyes. I called her strange. You but did. I did. Th- I didn't think Jekyll and Hyde level strange. And, and that's really kind of the vibe here. Right. Is that she's really kind of a Jekyll and Hyde. She, she's able to give this eloquent speech about those who can't speak up for themselves, you know, take the blame on, unfortunately, Uh, ostensibly standing up for Colleen in the beginning of the episode, but then she's also stabbing bitches in the neck with like a syringe. And that's not the last time we see her doing neck stuff in this episode. And especially when they intercut it with Isabel IDing the kidnapper, uh, in the hospital, and the, and the Shadow Woman, the, the the editing on this show is so, so good, where they're cutting back and forth, and then you're seeing Sarah's reaction, and then the team rushing out to the carriage, and then rushing to the hospital. You're getting an in intercut with this scene playing out of her interacting with and then attacking Bitsy. It was just, it was terrifying. It was surprising. It really, really caught me off guard. It takes a lot to surprise me. It takes a lot to make me jump. It takes me a lot to make my mouth hang open.
0: It was so satisfying in such a twisted way.
1: Yeah, especially how the episode had been set up. I mean, she 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 was genuinely upset at the matron. The matron realizing that she had taken the Martha Knapp file and kind of have gotten caught red-handed putting it back. And then she literally reduces her to tears when she makes her clean up the vomit or the piss. Oh no, it.
0: there was a there was a bloody birth. Something went bad wrong.
1: Yeah, right. And and she just breaks down in tears. Like you're really feeling bad for Libby here. But then, you know, that's that's Jekyll and then then, yeah. then Hyde comes out and she's just this fucking monster. It, it's you know, and it's really the the charcoal teeth really represents this chain. The show firing on all cylinders, the way they're showing the change. You know, she's got the, the she's not nearly as composed as she is every other time we see her with her tight red hair bun, you know, with a flawless skin that she kind of has. She looks deranged here.
0: That movie Primal Fear with Richard Gere, it made me think of that with the character that Ed Norton plays and where he's this, you know, mild-mannered Aaron Stamper and then he becomes Roy and this very brash, outspoken, psychotically broken character the other thing that I realized while this was all playing out was that Libby is short for Elizabeth. And I don't know if we have a last name yet on Libby.
1: I like it. I so, like it. Um, and someone who would be baby of the right down on their luck circumstances and to right, live kind
0: maybe of, on Hudson Street. On the Hudson
1: Street, in a in a in a halfway house, a boarding house run by the Dusters by Goo Goo Knox. That is a excellent, excellent deduction on your part.
0: Oh, thank you. So Libby flees the laying hospital and she's at the matron's house. And I'm, I'm not sure if she intended to end up at the matron's house or it just seemed like a, the next logical place that she needed to go on her, her bloody run here. I do feel what the matron did earlier in the day, contributed to the snap that she had, where she berated Libby after the, the bloody birth for not following directions and, and forcing her, humiliating her to, to clean up without her protective gear. So I do feel that that caused a snap in her because then has the act the charcoal in her mouth and attacks Bitsy and goes on this whole tirade. So do you think that she went to the matron's house with the express intent to to, to kill her and to, to maim her as such?
1: When I was honing in on her words that the... You know, asking that she that she's looking for sanctuary. She says that she wants in a couple of times, but she really can't complete a thought. So it's hard to say exactly what she is stammering on about. Yeah, she wants to rest her weary bones. I, I think she sees, I think she knows that the matron is a suspect person who is doing bad things to the people at the hospital. I think the whole sanctuary line is that I think she is the Yazoo tributary. I don't think she's in league. With what Marco and or the matron are doing with the mothers and the babies, I think she is running parallel to what they're doing with the babies. She has an idea or knows exactly what the matron and Marco are doing with the mothers and or the babies. And she wants, I think that's what she's trying to say here is she wants to be part of that because she needs, she needs what she says is sanctuary. She needs a place to hide. And when she says wants in, I think she wants to feel less guilty about the things that she's doing. Right, go back to the profile that they've put in that there is remorse here. Remember, she didn't just poison the baby; she then tried to reverse the poison. So right. she is conflicted about what she is doing. So I think she's go. I think she runs to the matron's place to find a compatriot. That's what she's. She's looking for a compatriot. She's looking for someone you know who understands the kind of things that she is doing. But the matron kind of makes her own bed. She continues to act this tough routine. The day's events are still on on Libby's mind, even in her deranged state. And the matron here doesn't take an appropriate subservient role like you think someone would who was fearing for their life. And she definitely looks scared. I think the matron looks scared, but she's not being subservient. She's still trying to have this power play up her hand over this simple ward girl. And that's the wrong tactic. And I think that ultimately causes her to lose her life here. When she pins her up at a wall and begins to stab her neck and say, stupid, 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 <laughs> as she stabs her at, in her carotid artery, that's a doing of the matron's own making. No one deserves to die that way. It's a violent death. But I also didn't feel bad even a little bit for the matron.
0: Obviously, anyone bleeding out on the floor is not going to be a good position to be in. You're never rooting. Well, I can't say you're never rooting, but you're not often rooting for the person to die. Was she an evil person? Yes. You know, did she deserve that? No. I hear what you're saying about the wanting in the sanctuary. I was just confused as to why Libby went there for that. If she'd also said to Sarah that I hate her. And that's how she said it. But I think that some of the things that the matron said triggered Libby back into that deranged state. And I feel when she said that she wanted sanctuary, and the way she said it she wanted to rest her weary bones, that was the snap happening again. She was quasi-lucid to that point, and then she became enraged again and and definitely had her psychotic unhinged break. No, I wasn't rooting for the matron to die, but I do feel that the matron did not read what was happening appropriately in order to take a different role to be in a de-escalating standpoint as opposed to an inflammatory igniter to her own stabbing death. Her tone, when she said, what did you do, Libby?
1: Yeah, the bitch slap she gets is just the kind of beginning of that. You know, Libby's walking around. She's like, you know, she's talking about how the place looks matronly. and I mean, she's kind of unhinged here, but the matron, yeah, the matron... Her tone, I think, ultimately snaps her. Changing her tone to, to realize this person is in a bad way and maybe is a danger to me. Uh, or, uh, on the other hand, uh, this woman who is a human being is clearly in a bad way and there's no empathy. the The matron is so obsessed with, you know, she mumbles stupid, stupid, stupid under her breath. At the beginning of the episode, uh, we see when she sits down at her desk, she's mumbling stupid, stupid, stupid. Like, the matron herself is mentally ill to a, to a certain extent. Or just a really bad person. Yeah, her her lack of empathy for this girl who is in her employ who she knows probably has some kind of broken history, is is really kind of beyond the pale. As gruesome a death as it was, I actually ended up feeling pity for Libby. She seems so lost and broken, and then the final scene where she paints the, uh, the memento mori with the eyes over her dead body laying on the floor, and there's the trail of blood from where she dragged the body, and then she curls up with it. This is a broken woman, and I don't feel bad for the patron. I don't want anyone to die, but I, my real sympathy here and pity was lying with Libby at the end of this episode. As as kind of wacky and kind of gruesome and horrible as that may sound, this is a woman who is in pain, which is, again, kind of the profile, right, that Laszlo and Sarah and the team have been talking about. A, a, a person who is acting out of rage and acting in violence based out of a deep, deep pain. Uh, you had asked in, your, in our pre-discussion about what the value of the scene was in the beginning with laszlo and mrs culler about the photos thinking about it now since you've wrote those notes where, where where did you come out on what's what's the value of that scene
0: grief is a wound that never heals so she may not have lost a child herself but libby knows loss so i'm not necessarily sure i mean so we have four episodes more to go to understand the profile now of libby but i feel that she's got a grief that she hasn't gotten over and for whatever reason this perverse act of love that she's showing right now to the matron is is some part and parcel of the trauma that has been inflicted upon her
1: the value of her one was where she kind of she looks pointedly at laszlo and says the thing about grief you know grief can be a wound that'll never heal She's kind of looking right at Laszlo. I mean, she's talking to Laszlo and his grief and as the source of everything he does. And then she translates what Memento Mori is, you know, remember you will die for him. But I think the value of that really is the book end to the end of this episode where we see a real life Memento Mori taking place. And so I think that's the value of that lesson at the beginning is you know, in her all of her career and how many hundreds of photos, maybe thousands of photos are in that room she's in with Lazo at the beginning of the episode, only two of the women she had ever done with had done the memento mori with their eyes. And both of those women took their life unable to deal with the grief that they were going through. Think about that, though. Of all the women who had had babies and lost them or weren't able to get over their grief that were driven so mad as to take their own life. That's the level of pain and grief that Libby's dealing with here, right? She's doing the memento mori on the matron. So I think that's the context. And, and for me, it was kind of a bookend. We showed you here at the beginning of the episode, some of the psychology about what would make someone to do this, you know, paint their baby's eyes, you know, open in death. And then you have Libby curling up, cradling the matron the way a child would with a mother or a mother would with a child curling up in the matron's dead arms after painting her face at the end of the episode. So for me, it was like a real bookend moment.
0: Just the fact that Libby was humming like a lullaby was even yeah. more of like the nightmare fuel for that scene.
1: I made you a screen cap and I sent you a screen cap of it. And it's just fucking nightmare fuel. It is. Uh, I, I Maybe I'll post it after the episode if TNT doesn't. It is a terrifying image, guys. <sighs> to really just zoom in the aerial shot of her just laying in the, in the kind of among the blood cool and the body blood. and the matron, not an attractive woman, maybe in life is even more so not in death uh, with her face painted
0: with her own blood,
1: with her own blood. Yeah. <laughs> when, when the scene cuts up to her and she's just kind of finger painting with the matron's blood, my stomach kind of retched a little bit again. And I'm really hard to get these kind of emotions out of, but I, maybe when I watched it, the show just got me in the right place. But Jesus Christ, there was some real nightmare fuel here. All of that being said, I don't know that we know for sure yet who is the wet nurse. I don't know that it's Libby. And now I'm not so sure that it's Colleen, which was your great theory from last week, which really had me convinced. Maybe it still is. Do you think it's Libby? Is that our takeaway here? I feel like there are different people playing different roles here. There's a woman doing the uh, breastfeeding. There's a woman kidnapping the babies. There's a woman killing babies. And I don't necessarily think they're all the same people. I think they may be different people.
0: Because we got the turn early, right? So now, you know, Libby's unearthed is doing... She's got the the medication part and she's got the charcoal part. So we've got only one facet of the plot lines here kind of unearthed. I need to know who the sicko wet nursing baby Anna is. Um, Colleen said that she has her own secrets. So... I'm not sure how many more secrets Colleen has left now that we know that she was Osgood's mistress. I
1: disagree with you. I think she says, I have secrets, and Bitsy says to her, what are your secrets? And Colleen says, I didn't say that they were my secrets. So Colleen has secrets. Yeah. I don't think Colleen has well, you just said that she still has her own secrets. I think. She, I, think I don't
0: think she's completely innocent here.
1: No, I, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Colleen doesn't, I don't think Colleen has any more of her own secrets. Colleen oh, has you're the secrets like she's on.
0: holding them for somebody else.
1: She knows what Marco is doing. She knows what the matron is doing. Maybe she has an idea about what Libby is doing. That was the scene of there. We, yeah, It wasn't that she, Colleen has any more of her own secrets. Colleen is holding on to... Other secrets. She knows what's going on in this place. That was my take. I did have
0: scene. a question about Colleen, though. Colleen went, when Bitsy was in the medicine cabinet and Colleen finds her there first, Colleen just turned the door handle. So that tells me that she has access to that room at other points because you wouldn't just go to a medication closet, turn the door handle, thinking that you were going to get into it. So there, there's something else up there. Even in 1897, these medication closets were kept under lock and key. I also want to know where did the dusters go? There's this whole big lead-up and swirling about them, so I'm not sure what. Where did the dusters go?
1: Well, I mean, we we had a little bit of hint of the dusters in this episode in the form of a New York Journal headline. Yes, that reports on. Remember, Burns told Doyle, uh, Captain Doyle, to spread the word that it was the Spanish, the Cubans, that dismembered those bodies down at Ganserford Market. And the journal we see in this episode is running with that headline and, and fanning those flames. So, you know, the Dusters are there kind of in spirit with that headline. But yeah, you know, hopefully they pick up the thread. I mean, we're we're not even quite halfway through the season yet, so I'm sure we're gonna see them more, especially with maybe now Libby Elizabeth. Who knows? Maybe Libby is uh, Google Knox's Mall or Ding Dong's mall. Who knows? <laughs> even though we got a lot of new information here tonight. I think there is a ton of information we still don't know, which I'm enjoying now how as much as the show served up information, questions, and gave answers in episode three, I feel like episode four served up some great questions, gave us some great answers, but didn't really answer any more questions. And I like that. You know, I want to I wanna jump right into the next episode. And as far as the second of two hours, I thought this was a great hour of television. This was a real cliffhanger ending that you want at the end of an episode four, an even number episode if we're watching this in two hour blocks. So great, great job on the show. Kind of keeping that tension rolling till we get to next week.
0: Right. So whereas like episode one was very much of this fuel, a nightmare fuel, we'll, we'll use that term again. And episode two was a little bit more balanced to that where, they're, you know, we were rejoicing that there were no dead babies. This is the opposite. Like this is where, you know, episode one came out with the one, two punch, like episode four now leaves you with like, oh my God, what's going to happen next? So um, I, I think it's a, a well done setup in terms of the two hour blocks because na- now you've got one and two behind us where it was a little bit more of balance and now we're off balance again and now it leaves us wanting. Well, where's the you know the next act going to come in? So um, I'm enjoying the tension that this is building towards.
1: Just two more odds and ends because uh, they weren't enough to justify their own line, but I wanted to give a big shout out to Joanna Crawford for wearing that heavy, hot-looking mask in the masquerade ball just so she could gather all of the gossip information for John for the New York Times. That is going above and beyond because that fucking thing looked like it was a thousand degrees and she couldn't obviously take it off until she had found, like, a secluded place to write down her notes. That was a great reveal that it was her in the mask. I had kind of forgotten about her and that she would be there. So I really, I really like that. I also want to give, just to put a pin in it, because nothing really happened with it other than setting the table a little bit. But we need to be aware of Burns. Burns did not like being dismissed as the help by Hearst and Osgood after he gives Hearst the cigar box as a wedding present. He is summarily dismissed, and you could see it getting his goat. And then he goes and crushes Moncton's hand and reminds him that he was a former commissioner. We have to watch Burns. Burns is going to be a real loose cannon in this season and maybe not against the good guys. He may be a loose cannon against the bad guys because just how Colleen has secrets that are not her own Burns knows where all the fucking bodies are buried for all of these highfalutin people who, you know, keep him on the payroll. So they would do well not to piss him off too, too much. Did did you catch that whole scene with Burns? Absolutely.
0: And in my notes, I did jot down that there's going to be a transference of this disrespect. So he does crush Moncton's hand, but I feel that he's going to need to have his respect So he's going to need to find someone who's going to give him that. And the part with the Isaacsons when he was blackmailing Lucius prior, I feel like there might be some turn there. So I I think you're you're close to the mark with uh, where I'm thinking, too.
1: He's the Cartman of South Park, you know, respect my authority. (laughs) But, you know, Burns has to be careful, though, himself, though, because... Remember last week, he kind of puts Marco on notice by bringing up the connection to the Lenars babies. And and we had talked about how my theory was that he did that specifically to kind of put Marco on notice that I know shit, brother. You better not treat me like the help too too much. And then he says to Osgood tonight, because Osgood is like, I don't think I know you. And Burns says, I know you, buddy. I know everyone. He has to watch that power play. That's twice now in two weeks that we've seen him play that card. Mm -hmm. And he has to be careful about throwing that around because he may find himself, you know, at the hands of the dusters if he's not careful.
0: Or take it to the train station. (laughs)
1: So that's the end of episode four in our analysis, but now we get to do a little bit of History Corner. There's only two items, I think, on our list tonight. What's your first one you got for History Corner, Uh, Sheila?
0: So yeah, so for History Corner, I I was kind of hard-pressed to find something, but this ball was touted by Sarah in episode three, as Marco's definitely going to be there because of you know being of the 400. So the 400 was a published list by the New York Times of New York Society during the Gilded Age, known as the time from the end of the Civil War to the turn of the 20th century. So, I found that this was actually interesting. The group was led by Caroline Shermerhorn Astor, who was Mrs. Astor of uh, John Jacob Astor. But Shermerhorn, uh was wondering if this is any relation, pun intended or not, to the Shermerhorn client of Sarah from the beginning of the season. So, but the list itself, the, the 400 list, was published by the New York Times in 1892 as the official list of the High Society of New York. So many of the people in attendance would have been among this list. And some of the well-known names are included in this are Vanderbilt, Astor, Schuyler, Cavendish, Depew. Depew was a, a senator from New York. There was a secretary of the Navy from a prior president. So it was a very well-known list. And we still know many of these names today, including Rensselaer. There's a, a university in New York. So yeah, it was that was my little history corner take
1: i love the 400 because that's something that the show has kind of talked about since its beginning and i i appreciate that it's resurfaced here and that they haven't lost sight of that that's the world that these people live in that john is you know maybe maybe not a fully accepted member of but new york is really controlled by these upper echelon you know mucky mucks and and new york was a real was a real caste town back then you, you know, it was very much a story of the haves and have nots there. There wasn't much of a middle-class, not really. You had these ultra rich socialites who had all of the power and then you had everyone else. And um, so I, I like that we got not only a mention of them tonight, but then we actually got to see them at play and, you know, think back to Laszlo watching those bridesmaids fist that giant wedding cake, looking for, whatever the fuck that they were looking there for. You know, I think it was, it was just, a ring. I think so too. It was just so bougie, you know, it was it was super bourgeois and it was this is the reason that, you know, the French aristocracy all lost their head to the guillotine. You know, the the Marie Antoinette's let them eat cake uh thing was so dead on because it's acting like this that when the quote unquote common people find out fucking take your life because they're so disgusted with how you behave so yeah it was great to see the 400 in action and at play today because they're just so obnoxious kind of across the board uh my history corner thing is a little more about the show and its attention to detail so it's a little scattered so just stay with me in the beginning of the episode we see john buy the new york journal from the paperboy and we see if you if you did a freeze frame you see that it was dated june 4th 1897, a friday June 4th 1897 was indeed a Friday we see the epi- uh, the journal that day is 12 pages long it is boasting of a story called My First Great Battle by Stephen Crane, author of the Red Badger Courage in next Sunday's journal uh, so in the upper right hand corner given like a little you know subscribe now to the paper for this this new article that's coming up. And the headlines on June 4th, 1897, were City of Roma Fire, Big Anchor Liner Discovered in Deadly Peril a Day from Port. Passengers not afraid. Boats were provisioned and ready, but they voted to stay aboard. That's the second column on the paper. Obviously, the first one that that the show kind of makes you focus in on is Hudson Torsos, Spain, the Barbarous Culprit? The Hallmark of Spain's Bloody Tactics Upon Its Colony, New York Fears Reprisals by Spanish and Cubans. Okay, so that's the show's headlines for the New York Journal and Advertiser, which is what the New York Journal was called actually beginning in April, I think, of 1897. The paper changed its name from the New York Journal to the New York Journal and Advertiser just a few months before this this episode takes place in time. The actual headline for the New York Journal and Advertiser on Friday, June 4th, 1897 does not boast any story coming by Stephen Crane in the next Sunday paper. It actually, in the upper right-hand corner, boasts of the first summer resort edition out next Sunday. June 4th, the big headlines on June 4th, 1897, in the New York Journal were, Prince quits dishwashing. Titled German receives money from home at last. Works a quick change. One week ago, he was Scullion in an eastside boarding house. Now dines at the Waldorf. That's the first column headline on the New York Journal from this day. The second one is Cora Route, a Sealy dancer, arrested. Miss Cora Route meets Chapman. He said that they would at the time of the Sealy dinner raid, Meeting not her choice. She is arrested on a charge of larceny and taken before the smiling captain. So some juicy gossip society page stuff there with a the dancer getting caught up with this mucky muck. Two wives watch McGowan's fall, former mayor's stocks, horses and carriage sold at auction, bargain day at Trenton. Mrs. McGowan, number one, weeps to see a rabble invade his home. Her rival shrinks alone. The sheriff is asked to stop the sale, but gives orders to it to proceed. The ex-magnet raves and storms, denounces the whole affair as an infernal robbery. The, the, The household effects to come under the hammer next week. So a former mayor of the city is uh, being basically, uh, all of his shit's being sold at auction. Very embarrassing. There's a gold and silver treasure trove found. Treasure trove in the earth. Workmen dig up handfuls of gold coins in North America. Diamonds were found too. This and silver crown are said to be 200 years old by experts. And then the last column of the New York Journal from actual Friday, June 4th, 1887 was, Wanamaker replies, I am no pessimist. For that reason, McKinley's epigram does not apply. Washington differs. Politicians will not let the ex postmaster general escape. The president is pleased, wants no controversy with Harrison's cabinet, but chuckles over the result. So, lots of low level information going on here. Not really sensational stuff. Definitely not Cubans raising terror in New
0: York. So, it shows. Can we go back to those simpler times of headlines? Because, dang, I can't take the headlines today. <laughs> I'll take those headlines.
1: Yeah. So really, really fun. Uh, One of the other things I want to talk about. So Stephen Crane, it's interesting that they used him in a fictional, you know, Mike Reed battle coming next Sunday. Stephen Crane actually did write for the New York Journal. He actually covered a ton of stories for them over the years. And in 1897, he actually covered for them the Greco-Turkish War of 1897 which was a 30-day war that happened between Greece and Turkey between April and May of 1897. The Sunday before June 4th, 1897, he actually wrote an article called The Dogs of War, a fascinating story of the battlefield of Greece from the author of The Red Badge of Courage, Stephen Crane. So they definitely took the idea of things that were happening, that Stephen Crane really was a war correspondent for Hearst, and he would later then go on and write a series of articles from Cuba for Hearst for the New York Journal in 1898 about the war, But he did, in fact, never write a article called My First Great Battle Article. I found a great website that actually gave me all of Stephen Crane's articles. And in the time frame, there was the next article after this one. Uh, So he has the Dogs of War, which is published in the New York Journal on May 30th, 1897. His next article was not published until June 13th, 1897. And that was called A Fragment of Velestino from the New York Journal. So Stephen Crane... You know this is a this is a based on true events kind of thing but did not actually write the article that were promised here in the episode while i was going through old issues of the new york journal this is the very last thing i have <laughs> thomas burns was the head of the new york city police department detective department from 1880 until 1895
0: shut the That's... front door
1: shut the front door he was forced to resign by teddy roosevelt who was a new york city police commissioner or he was the head of the police commission, Burns was forced to resign by Roosevelt because of corruption in 1895. (laughs) Two weekends before June 4th, 1897, there is an article, a a big expose article in the New York Journal written by ex-inspector Thomas Burns. He wrote a story called A Voice from the Tomb, the true story of America's most famous jail, which was the tombs, a firsthand account of the tombs so ex-inspector thomas burns actually did write for the new york journal here he's employed as kind of a cleaner a fixer for william randolph Hearst. but there is a real connection there the former disgraced head of detectives for the new york city police department thomas burns did write an expose a firsthand account on the new york city tombs which was like the correctional facility in new york city at that time so pretty, wow pretty yeah pretty awesome little uh, the show taking things that really happened and changing it around for the narrative. So I thought you guys would appreciate that kind of deep dive into old New York Journal headlines. Totally worth going. You can actually access a lot of the papers. They're digitized from this period. In uh, if you go to the Library of Congress's website, uh, you can actually pull up all of these editions. You can read the articles. The, the print gets a little bit tiny even when you blow it up. So the headlines are best, but it's really interesting. It's really fascinating to see this kind of period of time. The New York Journal wrote about war a lot from just the, the selection of headlines I looked at. William Randall first definitely had an agenda and an axe to grind, and he was definitely hitting that on the head. But I thought you guys would appreciate that little, uh, little snippet of history.
0: Was Burns the biggest piece of shit in the article that he wrote that he is in the show?
1: Well, no. Well, so... <laughs> So so reading about Ex-Inspector Burns, maybe go to Wikipedia for Thomas Burns, and there is one you can go read about it. Despite being fired for corruption, which I guess all of the New York police were corrupt at that time, as the show has has told us, he is actually credited as really creating the first modern detective. His Wikipedia page, anyway, talks pretty glowingly about how he gave a lot to the profession of modern detective work. Not maybe quite the piece of shit that we see on the show or maybe a piece of shit, but also did do some good stuff and did contribute to to the profession.
0: I gotta so, say, the picture of Thomas F. Burns on Wikipedia, they did a good job with.
1: They did an excellent. The job The actor, uh,
0: God, his first name is eluding me, but his last name is Levine. Very good casting, I will say. Yeah,
1: it's uh, yeah. You guys should go to check out Thomas Burns's website, uh, Wikipedia page. It's really really good casting. The the big broom handle mustache, really really uh, dead on. So that's where I leave you guys for this episode.
0: All right, so this is it for this episode of Meet at Delmonico's, the Alienist Podcast, and thank you so much for listening.
1: Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and leave us five stars. Five stars! Five stars! Five stars! Thanks so much for listening, guys. Bye. Mita Delmonico's The Alienist podcast is an original production of Pod Clubhouse. Recorded, edited, and produced at Pod Clubhouse Studios. For more information, visit us online at podclubhouse.com.